Two weeks ago, I, I started a series for us, and I feel like it's more for me. I mentioned that a little bit. I alluded to that earlier, but it's been something that I feel like a journey that God has been brought me on, and I don't think you're going to hear most of it because a lot of it's just, I realize it's for me. There's times where I'll pray as a pastor and think, God, is this for me or for me to prepare? Or, and there's a lot of times where he's just saying, this is just you, and that's fine. And so I've been studying and, and looking into this, this idea. And here it is, just to remind you, if you weren't here two weeks ago, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, when I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw everyone to myself. So two weeks ago, I went into detail talking about the different ways that Jesus is lifted up. I mean, there's the physical, concrete, obvious way, which is the following part of this verse, even where it says Jesus was, was telling them how he was going to die. Then there's also, I didn't even mention this two weeks ago, but then this, this is also an allusion to, remember the story when Moses and the people of Israel were being disobedient in the wilderness and they were bitten by snakes and and uh, God had them put a golden serpent on a stick and lift it up. And if they looked at it, they would be saved. Remember that? Very similar illusion here that, that uh, Jesus is, is recalling. But as we look at this, I want us to think about this for a few minutes. What does it mean for Jesus to be lifted up? And specifically, what does it mean for us? What does it mean for you personally, for you to lift him up? Well, what would that mean for you to lift Jesus up? Tonight, specifically, I want to talk about what it means to be a disciple. That's not a word we use very much. I think it's because it has the word discipline in it, the same root word, and we're, we're not comfortable with that anymore. You know, we used to talk about spiritual disciplines, but it sounds like you're in trouble. And now maybe a better term might be spiritual exercises or spiritual um, workout. I don't know. But what I do want to talk about is this, this whole idea of what does it mean to be a disciple? I mean, the, literally the term disciple. I mean, I know it's a Christ follower. You know that. And maybe you've heard that before. Maybe you've heard people describe themselves that way. I'm a Christ follower. Because sometimes the old terms and the old names, uh, they become old. And because, because we've heard them so much, they lose some of their power. And when they lose some of their power, we don't want to use them as much. And they're not as descriptive. And we want people to really understand what we mean. So we try to rephrase things. Sometimes in our rephrasing, we actually go back to old phrases that, that gain new life and new meaning. It's sometimes when you introduce like a chorus that was 20, 30 years old and people didn't realize it was old and now it's new again. And it's beautiful. A Christ follower. I mean, a disciple basically is someone who follows Christ, a Christ follower. The whole idea of Christian literally meant little Christs. You're going to be Christ-like. You're going to look like a little version of what Jesus Christ looked like. Um, one of the old phrases from early, early Christianity, they call Christianity the way. And they used to ask each other, are you in the way? Some of you may be in the way in a bad way. But it used to mean, are you in the way? Are you walking this path with me? Are we on the same path toward being like Christ? Now, having said all that, I have a serious question to ask you. And it's a question that, that really has haunted me most of my life. And that is this, have you been discipled? Because I look at my life and I, didn't, I, don't, I don't see, as I look back, I don't see very many, not, at least not a consistent, ongoing discipleship process that took place. At least it wasn't necessarily really intentional. Now, I was raised in church. My parents were good Christians. We did devotions together, which is an aspect of discipleship. We did that. 
And there were, there were times where we had questions and answers, and I still remember certain things that I was curious about that they tried their best to answer and we talked about. And I, I remember going to church and being, being in children's church and memorizing books of the Bible and memorizing gifts of the Spirit and fruit of the Spirit. I did that stuff. And that was discipleship of a kind. That was. And then if, if you were to ask me who was the most and most direct influence upon me as a, chi- as a young person... I wish I could have said it was my youth pastors, and I wish that because I was a youth pastor for so long, but it wasn't them. I had a long series, I had a host of youth pastors that went through our church. In fact, one of them, I may have mentioned this to you. Did I mention to you that one of them went to jail for, um, he was, you know, I grew up in San Diego, and I don't know, I don't know what he was thinking, but he was making money on the side as a coyote, which is someone who would smuggle people across the border. Yeah, he really did that. And yeah, he really got arrested and went to jail. And we showed up at youth one night and we're like, hey, wonder what's, <laughs> why there's nobody here. And then, you know, eventually someone came and said, um, I don't know if we're going to have youth tonight. Um, you know, pastor's in jail. <laughs> oh, okay. So uh, that, they weren't the big influencers. And there were times where I just, it just didn't work between, I mean, I, I, mean, I of course, I'm really easy to get along with. It had to have been them. But at some, for some reason, there wasn't that connection. But there was a volunteer in the youth ministry who spent time with me. And he didn't, I don't know that he intentionally discipled me. We never, he never said, hey, this is how to follow Christ. Follow me as I follow Christ. He just did that. We spent time together. You know, we, we shot bow and arrow in his backyard and we went places and did things, and he discipled me more than any other person. But I look back at that experience, and I, there's a part of me that wishes that that would have happened in a more intentional way. I wish more of that would have happened. And then that was it. There wasn't another relationship like that for me till Pastor Newby just a few years ago. I mean, there were, there were times where I tried to initiate that or make that happen, but that, that type of relationship didn't happen. So you're talking about a, oh Lord, a 30-year gap. And I ask you, were you ever discipled? How were you discipled? How did that work for you? Were, did you have somebody who walked you along in the faith? I mean, was there somebody that showed you what it means to be like Christ and to walk this walk? Maybe it was for you a parent. God bless you if you had good Christian parents because that is worth everything. Maybe for you, it was somebody in the church or someone who was further along in their faith. I wonder also then, do you do this? Do you disciple? Because I think for some of us, we get the idea that this discipling is all for the, remember the professional Christians, the paid ones, the full-time ones, the ones who have a title in front of their name. And we forget that this discipling is something that we're supposed to be doing one for the other. And it's supposed to be an ongoing cyclical process that happens from us to another. And it, it really, there's never really an end point. There's never a, an expiration date on this. It's never like you get too old or you're too busy or you're too whatever. You, we all should have these kinds of relationships that we're discipling somebody. There's a young lady in the, um, she's in the college group. And she asked me by Facebook the other day, hey, do you know of a woman in the church who could mentor me? I thought, we need to have that. We need this. There should be names popping in my mind. And a lot of people popped in my mind. And I thought, wow, I wonder if, this, if they're doing this. I wonder if these ladies who I was thinking of are actually in the process of discipling somebody now. Or, or do we even think of it like that? 
And I'm not saying that we necessarily have to have a formalized process, but do you have a relationship like that where you're investing in the life of a younger believer and showing them the way, walking them through this in Christ? At the men's, uh, Iron Men's uh, life group, the men's group at uh, Joe Thompson's house last night, um, Jeff Wilkie was talking about a guy that he is doing this with, and he didn't intend to do this. And he was sharing this a little bit. Sheila, you probably have a lot more insight to this than, than we do. But he was just telling us last night that the guy called him up and said, hey, uh, what are you doing today? You know, that's always, you know, those open-ended questions where you're just not sure how to answer because you're not sure what you're committing to by not having something to do. And Jeff told the guy, he goes, well, I've got a, I've got a lot of driving today. I'll be driving around pretty much most of the day. And so the guy said, well, can I, can I just ride with you? I need, I, need to, I need to be discipled by you. <laughs> We're hungry for that. At some level, we're hungry for that. And if you're not, you, it's, it may just be because you didn't know it was there and it, it wasn't part of the way that you've been cultured, our culture as a church or maybe the way we've done church. And, and please understand, I know that a lot of discipleship happens with you coming on a Wednesday and going to church and going to Sunday school and reading the Bible yourself. And all of that is wonderful. But there's an aspect of it that I think has been missing. And I want us to take a look specifically at scripture in just a few minutes. Okay, now if somebody is discipled, how would you know that they had been discipled? It's primarily, we think, right, because they're going to do and say the right things, right? That's how you know. We judge people. I mean, that's all we have to judge a lot of times is by what we see. And we might call it fruit. I had a friend who used to always tell me, he goes, yeah, I'm a fruit inspector. (laughs) I said, no, you're judgmental. He goes, no, I'm a fruit inspector. I'm just doing what the Bible says to do. Says you shall know them by their fruit. And I can tell that person ain't, they ain't living right. I'm like, okay, all right. I see how you are. But we do. And how else do you do it? Uh, Jesus, or not Jesus, John, and First uh, John 4, 7, and 8 says that they will know us by our love. I mean, how, what would be the test and the measure of whether or not you're discipled? And I'm setting all this up because I want to show you tonight at least one way that Jesus gave the definition of. It reminds me of this a little bit. Um, it, who else had piano lessons as a kid? I'm raising my hand. Okay. And the piano lessons at the time were torturous, and I never practiced. Anybody else with me? Thank you. And I would get into my lesson, and I thought I was doing great. And I remember once my, one of my teachers, she said, you're really a good sight reader. I said, what? What do you mean? She goes, you know, if you would practice, you might be able to play someday. And oh, I was, she found me out. You know, I was so embarrassed, and I was hoping she wouldn't tell my mom, and she did. And there came a point where the lesson stopped. Anybody else like this? And now as I hear a piano player, I mean, there's times like, like today, you know, I do this a lot, but I'll, I'll just set my phone and put Pandora on there. And I've got one of the stations I have on there. If, you, if you're not familiar with that, it's an app where you can choose a style of music and it just goes and grabs all these styles. I don't know where they get them, but they, they get them. And I'll just listen to piano only. And I just, I mean, there's times I'll sit there and think, I wonder if I could have done that. Or you might say it like this. And maybe you've done this where you see somebody who's really good at an instrument or good at a certain thing, a skill, and you say, wow, I'd give my life to play like that. There's the old story of the piano player who turned to the guy who said that and said, really? Because I did. You think about that for a minute. Think about the commitment it takes to be really accomplished at an instrument. There's, There's a commitment there that takes more than most of us are willing to give, right? I mean, if, if it was easy, everybody would do it and it wouldn't be special anymore. 
But one of the reasons it's so special is because to reach that level, you've got to commit everything. I mean, put everything else aside to be that one thing. You know, it's, I think for some of us, we just think, oh, they just were talented. You know what? Their talent will take you so far. But then beyond that comes skill. It's interesting because um, there's this guy, listen, anyway, there, there, this one guy, he was interviewing, he got a chance, this, this guy I've heard on the radio a lot, he likes to d- direct orchestras and he's, he's studied that a lot. I mean, he's not himself a musician, but he's, he's a, a conductor. But he was interviewing some of the, the uh, LA Philharmonic um, musicians and he just asked them, he just did this kind of random survey. He says, did your mom have to make you practice? To a person, they said, no, I loved it. I would just, they would have to make me stop practicing. That's not just talent. That's also commitment beyond the norm, beyond us. Or I mean, some of, I mean, someone here may be that kind of piano player. I don't know, but let's do this. What is a disciple then? I'll tell you for just a few minutes. Let's, let's take a look. This is, I'm, I'm, we're going to Mark chapter four or chapter one. And um, what happens right before this section of scripture right here, right before this is Jesus going to, he's going to be calling his disciples. What happens right before this is Jesus is baptized by John. John is put in prison. Okay. This is what has just happened. Okay. Later on, uh, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where he preached God's good news. And this is a quotation of what he preached. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. One day as Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon, also called Peter, and his brother Andrew throwing a net into the water for they fished for a living. Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little further up the shore, Jesus saw Zebedee's sons, James and John, in a boat repairing their nets. He called them at once, and they also followed him, leaving their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men. Jesus' message. Here's what I want to do tonight. As we lift up Jesus, what I want to do is specifically focus in on this particular scripture and see what Jesus' message was here and then also to, to go past his message just a little bit and to see what he was trying to accomplish. Here's the thing. Think about it for a minute. We talked a minute ago about Christmas and how much I love Christmas. Have you noticed how the world tends to reinterpret what Christmas message is? They do the same thing to Jesus all the time. They'll tell you what Jesus' message was. When you, 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 know, you know what it is way better than they do. And beyond that, I want to see what Jesus said his message was. I don't really care what they think it was. Because I know the fact is that a lot of times we, we reinterpret it ourselves. But you know how people do that with even Christmas. I mean, as you watch the, the little TV shows or maybe you see a, maybe as you're watching the news or something, you'll see that later on, you know, ABC families running, you know, 25 days of Christmas movies. And that might spark a memory in you and you'll say, oh yeah, I remember with Charlie Brown this and whatever. And you can see how many different ways the world has reinterpreted the Christmas message. I mean, if I were to ask you today, what is the Christmas message? What would you say it is? You can talk in church tonight if you want. What would you say it is? There's a few ways to say it, but what would you say it is? God came to earth, Emmanuel, God with us, right? I mean, that's Christmas. What else is the message? I mean, that is the message, but there's implications of that message that you could say are the message as well. What, anybody else, any other ideas? 
Yes. He came to save the world. We could be saved. Man, there's hope for man, hope for mankind. But what does the world say the message is? And these are good messages, but they'll say that the whole message of Christmas is what? Family, which is good. Can't argue with that. Giving, it's good to give, right? Love for all mankind. I'm not sure how they get that out of there, but okay. And, and those are all good messages, but they reinterpret the message. But we do the same thing with Jesus' message. We do it. We do it. The world certainly does it, but even we do it. And I think sometimes we do it because if we really look sometimes at what his real message is, it can be a little bit uncomfortable for us, even as Christians. Have you noticed this? We as Christians are really good at being Christians up to a point, up to the point that we're comfortable with. And we don't want to go much further than that. I mean, we want to give, but not give until it hurts. You know, there's things that Jesus calls us to that ultimately get a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, Sometimes even maybe a little threatening. I don't like people telling me I'm not good at being a Christian. You know what I mean? Like, you don't, you don't like them when they tell you you're not being a good driver. Right? We're all a little defensive about some things. And I think being a Christian at times, it can get a little uncomfortable. But if you look at Jesus' message in, in a clear way, there's times where we, we ourselves do this. Let's take a look again at his message. It was tucked in there when it said later on, uh, Jesus went into Galilee, Galilee where he preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last. And he announced the kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. That was his message in a nutshell. Anytime you use the book of Mark, you're going to get it quick and clean and direct. Because he wrote for Peter, and that was basically Peter's personality. You know, get it done right now. Give me the sword. I'll take, I'll take care of it. I'm going to jump out of the boat and come swim to Jesus. I mean, that was Peter. Mark wrote for Peter. You want the, the quick, quick to the point? This was Jesus' message. So let's take a look at it real quick. First of all, I think it's interesting that God chose a pre preaching to tell the message. Do you ever think about this? I mean, it is God. He could have. I mean, he, they didn't. At this time period, I mean, we could debate why he came at this time like, if he, if he came now, can you imagine? I mean, he could have used Sony Univision, right? I mean, you could have seen it all around the world in just a heartbeat, but he chose to do it this way, and he chose to use preaching. He didn't do, at first, I mean, he didn't do like a big flash thing, right? I mean, he could have. Think about it. It's Jesus. I mean, it's the son of God. He's standing by the water. He could have whipped the water up. Anybody ever seen Fantasia at Disneyland where they do that? And spray the water up and then put all the lights on it. Couldn't God have done that? Well, yeah, he could have done that. He didn't do that. He chose to use verbal communication, proclaiming the good news. That's what he chose to do. And then as he did it, he said this specifically, that the time has been fulfilled. Now, if you heard that today, I mean, you may, you may think of some preacher, some crazy preacher on the side of the road with a sign that says, the end is near, right? I mean, that, that calls up an image in our minds in modern America, but for the Jew, for them, for someone like Jesus to be saying, the time has been fulfilled. What he was saying to them, that's almost like catchphrases for Jews. What he was saying to them is, all the prophecies you grew up hearing about, it's on. It's on now. That's what he was saying. So all the things, that, all the expectations, all the hopes and dreams that they had that the Messiah would fulfill, that's what they would, that he was saying. When he said the time is fulfilled, he said it's happening now. It's go time. 
So for a lot of them, they had to be thinking things that probably for some of us, we weren't really quite ready to think about for a minute. You got to understand, they hadn't heard, there hadn't been a, a message from God for 400 years. You know, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. There's 400 years before Jesus comes on the scene. That is a long time to wait, a lot of anticipation. People are expecting some big, big things. Jesus was just baptized by John, and then he proclaims this, that the time has been fulfilled. So he goes into a little bit more of, his, of detail. What he's saying, I alluded to two weeks ago when I talked about the fact that, you know, there's times where we think that, you know, like we, a lot of people were saying, oh, this is the most important, important election in history. Well, this was the most important hinge point in history. This is the son of God coming and saying, it is on now. This is a big deal and it's happening right now. The next thing that he says in his message is, I love this. You've got to understand that as Jesus is coming on the scene, you know how John, in the book of John, it starts, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. John got it. He got the fact that this is almost like a new creation. It's almost like it's, this is a big deal, like as big a deal as creation itself. That's why he mirrored the opening to Genesis 1-1, where in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Same, same idea here. Jesus, think about how important what Jesus is saying is that he's, it's almost as if he was telling everybody, all of history has come to this point. Think of the audaciousness of that for a minute. I mean, he can do it though. He's God. But think about what he's saying. He says, everything that you've been waiting for, it's coming to pass now. I am here. Now he built up their expectations to the point where no doubt they were thinking about cultural change, overflow. Maybe the Jews were going to take the height. I mean, I'm sure in their minds, they thought that maybe the time of David and Solomon was the height of the Jewish influence in the world. Maybe that's what they were thinking. Maybe they were thinking that it was going to overthrow the Roman government. I don't know. But all of those thoughts had to be there because Jesus said, this is what's going down and it's going down right now. Here's what you need to think about. History is his story. And that's what Jesus was proclaiming to them that day. Those are some of the things that they thought. The next thing that Jesus said, it's the kingdom of God. Those are power-packed words. Now, we throw those words around. We use them a lot. We've heard them a lot. You've heard them in songs. You've read them. And for us, I think, unfortunately, for somehow they lose their meaning. But when Jesus said that he was proclaiming the kingdom of God, they understood that, I think, better than we do as modern Americans. I mean, we aren't raised in kingdoms. We rebel against that. I, I personally hate the idea of classes or that somebody's over us or better than us or because they were born under a certain name that they're special. But in this society, when he said the kingdom of God is here, that meant something more to them. Basically, he, what he's saying is, it, is God's rule is starting now. It's happening now and it's starting with me. For them, they were sitting there thinking, wow. So God is now going to rule. And what is that going to look like? I mean, for them, what that meant is that everything was going to start to come under God's authority. That's what the kingdom of God means. When Jesus says the kingdom of God is here, he is saying that everything is going to come under God's authority. That meant that things are going to change. Social structures are going to change. Everything is going to change. What they didn't understand, unfortunately, what Jesus was talking about is this beginning here is that he starts that rule, the kingdom of God and the rule of God starts in our hearts. That's where it begins. 
And from there, it spreads out to the entire world. But it starts in the hearts of men. Now, of course, they didn't understand that. They were confused. And for the next three and a half years, as Jesus preached, they probably saw more and more of what he meant. But at that moment in time, that's what they were thinking. That kingdom of God. Let me, let's break this down for us, though. What does it mean for us? Because what, what I want to do is talk to us about what it means to be a disciple. And what that means is that you as a Christian, you need to look at things way, way, way differently than most of us as modern Christians look at it. Because most of us, we want to define Christianity, like I said before, as is comfortable for us. We don't want it to get in our business or in our way. I mean, we're comfortable with being Christians, but only to a point. I mean, we don't want to be embarrassed by it. We don't want to be inconvenienced. We don't want any of the things that unfortunately though, you don't get to choose that. You see, we want to stay in the driver's seat and then we want to kind of kick Jesus back as like he's an added feature or a bolt on or something. It's like he's something that just comes with the car. No, no, no. Jesus drives the car. Do you see the difference here? Uh, let me add another little thing. Some of us look at Jesus as if he's kind of an insurance policy just to keep us out of fire at the end or if we have an accident, but I'm not going to let him drive. I mean, I don't want him to steer. I don't want him to tell me where to go or where not to go or how fast to go, right? We don't want him for that. We just want him when we want him. It's almost like he's the backseat driver, but you got the glass that you can roll up and shut him off when you want. <laughs> oh, it's like, guys, if he's really the king, then he's got full access to the controls. It's like, remember that bumper sticker that said, God's my co-pilot? I've never been a fan of Christian stuff like that, but there was something about it. I could never put my finger on it. Why does that bother me? There's something about that that just wasn't right. You know why? He's not the co-pilot. He's the pilot. He's in charge. We're not in charge. If you're really going to come under the rule of God, the kingdom of God, and if, it's gonna, if he's going to reign in your heart, then that means he is in charge of all of it. No negotiating. He's in charge. And what we're supposed to do is fall at the feet of the king. We even sang it in that song today. We fall at his feet and we worship him and we're okay with that. Now that is really un-American. It is. It's really un-American. I mean, we're very comfortable as Americans because we're really good people, right? And we're a Christian nation and we're all Christians. So because of that, it's comfortable for us to live as Christians. We're even mostly nice, But that is not what he's asking for. It's, it's more than that. Because if you're really giving him, if he's really, really in charge, that means that he's in charge of each decision, financial decisions, relationship decisions, decisions about who you talk to, when you talk to, how you talk to him, what attitude you have. He, if he's really in charge, then he's in charge of all of that. And you no longer have a position to claim your rights. It's not about that anymore because you have relinquished your rights to the king. Does that make sense? That's harsh, isn't it? I, I was, I was uh, talking with Tim Davis yesterday, and um, every time we talk, it, we always end up talking about C.S. Lewis. It seems like everything comes back to C.S. Lewis for me. And one of the things that, that we ended up talking about the most was the fact that C.S. Lewis, one of the things he says is that all sin comes down to pride. I want to explore that with us for just a moment here in this specific idea. If you're going to really give it all over to God, that means you have to relinquish all your pride. And think about how pride is at the base of everything. 
I mean, pride drives us to selfishness. It's because I want what I want because I deserve it, right? And I deserve it more than you or more than her. And I want that. That's why I have the right to take it or the right to want it so bad that it alters the way I think and the way I act. And I'm pride, I have pride in me. And because of that, that's why I'm so offended that you would dare look at me like that or treat me like that or cheat me or whatever. We can become so indignant and offended. But think about it on the other way. If you, had, if you could somehow die completely to your pride, how could you ever be offended? You never could be. There's nothing that could you offend you because you have nothing to be offended by. I mean, because you are nothing. You've let all of that flow out and it's all about him. And you've given it all to him and then for it's no more about me. It's not about me anymore. I don't have to demand my rights because I don't have the rights. I've given my rights up to him. And I'm grateful for whatever he gives me. It's a totally, totally different way of looking at the world. It's being a disciple. It's pretty hardcore. You know, I wasn't going to talk about this but it, um, at all, but this guy who, was, who discipled me, the one guy probably as a youth that discipled me, you know, one of the ways he did, he didn't say, he didn't talk about this, but here's the deal. He had been an underwater demolition guy in Vietnam, not a SEAL, but a UDT guy. Bad dude. Incredibly. And, and you know, as a high school guy, I mean, we just thought this guy was amazing. I remember one time we were waiting in line to go to a swap meet. You guys know what that is? <laughs> Even, do we, do we have those out here? Okay. So we're waiting in line at a swap meet, and um, this guy in front of us was such a jerk such a jerk. And this, this guy, his name was Kurt. He wasn't a very big man. And um, this guy kind of stepped back and literally stepped on him. And you know what I wanted to see happen? <laughs> you know, right? I wanted him to exert his rights. I wanted him to be prideful and show this, put this guy in his place. That's what I wanted to see. And I watched this man of God just step out of the way and say, oh, are you okay? and treat him so politely. And later I remember saying to him, I said, Kurt, didn't part of you just want to do something? I mean, you know, you could have just dropped him, <laughs> you know? And Kurt said, yeah, but that, you know, that's not who I am. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at him thinking, I want to be able to do that. And I can't, he can, and he won't. He didn't, he didn't, he didn't spell that out for me. He, he lived that in front of me. You see the difference there? He was doing it. Man, I hadn't thought about that for a long, 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 long time. The next part of Jesus' message that's embedded here in this passage in Mark, he says, repent and believe the good news. That is another very, very powerfully packed statement. It's huge. And again, it's something that we become so familiar with that we forget the deep meaning of it. When he says to the people, repent, He's saying something that is huge. Notice that it's the same message that Peter preached at Pentecost. You ever wonder why? Because Peter heard that, that sermon probably a ton of times. When Peter got up to preach at Pentecost, he probably didn't preach a lot of new stuff. He probably preached just an amalgamation, a collection of everything he'd heard Jesus preach. That was the message. He's, repent means to literally to change direction. <clears throat> I want to make this very clear. There is sorrow in repentance, but sorrow is not enough. Jesus didn't say, be sorry for your sins. He said, repent. 
because the sorrows understood in there. Now, the thing is, a lot of times we can be sorry and still not repent. And we've all been there. You've been caught, done something. You've seen the hurt you've caused somebody, but you don't change. You, you go on. You feel better about yourself because you were sorry, but sorrow itself isn't enough. That's, that doesn't equate to change. But if you really repent and literally change your behavior, I mean, the word literally means to change direction. I had this pastor once preaching about it, and he had this little boy come up, and he, he made him like a little robot, you know, and he said, okay, I want you to walk, and every time I say repent, just flip around and go the other way. And he made him do that back and forth across the front. And I remember watching him thinking, wow, I don't know if I've ever repented then. If that's really what it means to literally change my behavior, change my attitude, I don't know if my mom will hear this or not, but my mom used to do this. To, she was a great disciplinarian. She'd say, you better change your attitude right now or I'll change it for you. Anybody ever hear that? Yes. Do you know you can do that? You can do that. I remember being up saying to you, I'll give you something to cry about. <laughs> <I'm> sorry. <clears throat> but you know what? You could change. You could change. But when I, when I think about this concept of actual repentance, I, I wonder sometimes, did I ever really repent? Or was I just sorry? Because I know that there's still a remnant, at least inside me, that wants to be that way. There's something in there that still grasps for my own. And, and I want that for myself still. Because I haven't repented completely. I haven't changed. I want to be changed. Jesus' message was change, repent, and believe the good news. The thing about it is it's, it's, it's the control center is changed. I don't want to be too geeky with you or anything, but you know how some things are just a certain way? It's as if you rewire it so it operates in the opposite. Think about it like that. It's like when that impulse comes, you don't react the way you used to. You react the opposite of the way you used to because you've been changed. You've repented and everything has changed. You've, you've given up your rights. We've always heard that salvation's a free gift, haven't we? That is true. But unfortunately, sometimes the language we use hides a little bit about this. And I want us to think about this for a minute. It is a free gift, but it will cost you. It's a free gift, but think about what it costs our Lord. It costs him everything. It costs him heaven. It costs him his dignity. It costs him literally his blood. It costs him, get, how much do we value a normal life, a comfortable life? You realize he never had that? He never had that. He never had all the things in life that we value so highly. But it cost him that. Not only that, it costs you. It does cost you. I think sometimes we, we describe Christianity and we don't fully describe it because it is a free gift, but it's not free because it will cost you your life. It will. Now, there's a good size to that a good side to that, but it will cost you your life. I want you to think of it tonight as this. It's really a change in ownership. Anybody old enough to remember Bob Dylan and you gotta, love, you gotta serve somebody? Remember that song? Anybody? Okay, five of us. Well, here's the thing. All of us were a slave to sin. All of us. That's who we are. Our human nature drives us to sin, and you don't have much choice in that. In fact, all you got to do is just go with the flow and be normal, and that's what you'll be. 
It's like when, when I hear somebody talking about, you know, oh, this, this guy got this girl pregnant and oh, how horrible that is. And I think, well, yeah, if you're a Christian, if not, that's what they do. All right. That's what we do. That's who we are. That's what I, that's what guys want. Unless you're a Christian, then it's different because you're a slave to sin before. And then, and then all the things that go with it. Yes, it's fun for a while, but then the death and the destruction comes and the destroyed relationships and the hardships and the extra costs that you didn't see involved before. And then when you realize how painful that life is, you're willing to change ownership. But sometimes as Christians, we only want to change so far, right? We still want to hold on to a little bit of that ownership ourselves. We don't want to fully give ourselves to him, but that's what this being a disciple means is that you completely change from, from being sold to sin and yet, and then sold to him. There is a cost and it's huge. So what was Jesus' mission? Was it to throw, overthrow Roman occupation? Nope. That's what they thought. And that's what they tried to accuse him of. That's the way they got him on a Roman trial, right? Was it to uh, overthrow Rome and put up a theocracy? Theocracy meaning God is in charge and God rules? No, wasn't that. That's what people thought. Was it maybe, I imagine some of the people there, some of the Jews were hoping that all the blessings promised to Abraham that they've heard about all their lives would all of a sudden be theirs. That once God would come in and be in charge, then all the good Jews would get all the good stuff. Right? Don't, isn't that what we want as Christians too? Maybe they thought they'd get to be in charge of all the Gentiles who've been persecuting them all these centuries. I don't know. Maybe they wanted some more manna and quail. They didn't want to have to work anymore and they'd get it all for free. Maybe that's what they thought was coming. I don't know. But here's what Jesus said. His mission, Jesus called out to them, come follow me and I will show you how to fish for people. And they left their nets at once and followed him. This is another aspect of discipleship, which if you're going to be a true disciple, if you're really going to lift Jesus up, then you, me, us, we would fulfill his mission just like the disciples did that day. It was huge, huge what they did. Jesus' mission was to spread the message. You you get that? Wasn't that deep, was it? Were you thinking it'd be like some big deal? It's a big deal. Here's the big deal. We get to spread the message. We get to spread the message. But what do most of us as Christians do? We get the message and then we sit comfortably with the message. We got it. We're in. We're good. My life is good. Too bad for y'all. I'm good. But to be a disciple meant you didn't just get the message. You spread the message. You actually tell some people. You help another brother who's hurting. It's like I've heard it. I heard this said a million ways, but one way I like recently is it's, it's I'm just another beggar trying to show other beggars where the bread is. But most of us don't do that. Most Christians, we stop there and we're cool with it because we got the bread and we don't share it. We don't tell anybody why. It might be a little embarrassing, might be uncomfortable, might be a little bit. Maybe somebody wouldn't talk to us anymore or would like us or think we're cool or whatever. But it's true that we are good with what we got, but that wasn't it. It was more than that. Think about this for a minute. As Jesus went to call his disciples, if if I was God, I I, I would do it different. 
Wouldn't you? Don't you think you could have found someone better than, I don't want to name names because we'll see them later, but, right? Do you think that you would have sat around with God and say, I'm going to walk down and find four fishermen, and then I'm going to do a tax collector later, and then I got this guy who asks a lot of questions, and then this guy who's hard to convince of stuff. Don't you think they could have found somebody who was already a good speaker? Maybe somebody already respected, maybe someone independently wealthy, maybe someone connected, maybe someone who could have given them some, uh, maybe some, maybe some access to the government where they could have gotten a public forum. Nah. Think about this for a minute. <laughs> if, if I was, and here's an even funnier thing when people say like they, that they made up the Bible, you don't make the story up like this. This is, this is what happened. All right. If you're going to make the story up, you wouldn't make it up like this. So Jesus just walks up to these guys and says, hey, you got a good livelihood going on here. I want you to leave all that, follow me, and let's start fishing for people. Hmm. <laughs> did, did Jesus promise them that he would help them with their job and family? Isn't that what we promise people? You come to Christ, your job will be better and your family will be all fixed. Gee, what did Jesus say? No, no, no. Leave your job and your dad and come with me. I'm your family now. Did he promise some spiritual gifts? Uh-uh. He didn't, did he? He didn't say, come, come follow me and I'll show you stuff. Like people get healed. We'll, we'll do some things. He didn't do that. Yeah, all that happened. Yes, you get the, the job and family stuff. But that's not the draw. That's not what he was selling. I love this. Think about how audacious it was for him to call them the way he did and how automatic their response was. They dropped everything. That is a message for us tonight as a disciple. Are you going to be that kind of disciple? When he calls and he calls over and over, thank God he keeps calling, right? Because we miss it and things happen and, and I mean, it happens. You have opportunities and you miss it. And he still gives us some more opportunities. And there's somebody who asks you a question or somebody you have, you know, God is telling you to say something to them and you, oh, I can't do it. And then the moment passes and you're like, oh, if, if I get the chance again, I will. And he gives you another chance. He's calling you to that kind of discipleship. If you're going to be a really disciple, then that means when he calls, no matter how audacious it is, you drop it all and you say, yes, I'm come, I'll, I'm, I'm, I'm there. And yes, your job will be better and your relationships will be better. Yes, but come. He wants you to come. He calls us to come. So let's talk about you for a minute. <laughs> Are you qualified for this? Because you're more qualified than Peter and Andrew and James and John. You know that? You are. Is that offensive? Because some people think, well, God must have seen something in them that he was going to use and develop later. I don't know about that, but I know this, that 2 Corinthians says that God has placed this treasure in jars of clay, which is you. And the same level of discipleship and the disciple that he called those men to that day, those four guys that we saw that little picture into their life, he calls us to that today and every day. He calls you. 
And Peter and James and John aren't here anymore. And their, their, their society was more agrarian and, and fisherman based. And that was different. And you're here. And who better to reach your friends and family than you? Who knows you better than them and they better than you? You, you are the perfect person for him to use. And I've said this before, and I always wonder, and that's one of the things I'm going to ask him, God, like, was this the best idea? Because you could have found somebody better than me, I know, or, or better, you could come. I've told you this, right, how silly it sounds, but I wish so often I could just set up an appointment with, with somebody I, I know needs him and just say, hey, if you come right now, Jesus will be here, and he will talk to you, he'll answer every question, he'll heal every hurt. Wouldn't that be, wouldn't that be easier, more direct, make more sense? but he didn't do it that way. He didn't do it that way. He didn't go to the top of government and the elite in society. He went to fishermen. He went to common people like you and me, just like you and me, because that's who he uses. That's who he uses. That's, he created you like you because he likes you and he wants to use you. And when he calls you as a disciple, he wants you to respond that way. So what are you being called to? So many times we, we think, oh, when I'm being called, it's, you know, missionary to India or to a, you know, a leper colony or whatever. No. Yes. I mean, yes, but no. He, he calls you to everyday things. That's what he does. I mean, yes, those people need reached in all those places. Yes. Yes. But what about at your work and what about at your home and what about family you have and what about the people you see at, you know, at, at Walmart and Quick Trip and yeah, they are the ones who, who it breaks Jesus' heart that they still haven't come and they haven't heard. And when he's calling and he, his, his message is that the kingdom of God is now, you are his emissary to proclaim the kingdom of God now. You are it. And he tends for you to answer you know, there's that line in the disciples' prayer when they asked Jesus how to pray, and he said, your kingdom come. We're supposed to pray for his kingdom to come. It's kind of a trick he played on us. Because praying for his kingdom to come means you do it. Guess what? You do it. It's not like his kingdom come and then he takes care of it all. No, no, no. When we pray his kingdom come, his will be done, his will is for you to tell folk for you to take the message out there. That's his will. That is the kingdom coming. You. You are his, his little people doing it. <laughs> I want you to bow your heads with me for a minute. First thing, I'm, I'm going to ask you two basic questions. The first thing is this. Dave, could you play just a little, you know, mood music and soften us up a little bit? First question I'm going to ask is this. At first, when we were talking about what it meant to be a disciple and to be completely surrendered to him and to surrender all your pride and all your rights and all the things that you deserve to him, as I was talking about that, I know that the Holy Spirit convicted me of some things. Even as I was talking, I know he was convicting you because that's a good and loving God. I love how pastor said this last Sunday. You don't want someone to love you how you are. 
You wouldn't even like that person. <laughs> Jesus wants to make you better than that. And that's what he wants for you tonight. He wants you to be better than that tonight. So I ask you, what area of your life have you kept from his kingdom? What, what part of that, that core analogy are you not letting him control right now? What is it that you've said that you kind of reserve to yourself? No, I'm, I'm, I'm good with being a Christian in all these other areas, but this one thing is, what is that? What is it that you need to, to just relinquish and turn over to him? Whatever that is, I just want you to speak it to him right now because it, it may be one of those things that, that's going to take some time and a process. Like, God, it's, I, I believe, but help my own belief. Just tell him. Just tell him in your own way, but tell him. Maybe, maybe you telling him sounds something like this. Like, God, I want, I want to be closer to you, and I struggle with giving this up. Maybe it's anger. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's, maybe it's lust. Maybe it's just... It's something that I can't control right now, and I want to give it to you, but I, I'm struggling. God, please help me. Tell him that. He wants to help you and work with you in that and purify and perfect you into his disciple, into his follower, into his little Christ. He wants to do that in your heart and mind. Just tell him in your own words for just a minute. Hallelujah, Lord. We need you. We need you. God, we need you. Hallelujah, Lord. We need you. God, I pray that you do this work in us, in each one of us, that you would take our lives and make them look, conform them to your image, to the image of your son. Praise you for that, Lord. Now, with your eyes still closed and your head bowed, I want you to think about this for a minute. This, this idea that that we're supposed to proclaim the, the kingdom of God. Here's the thing. You may be thinking, yeah, I'm, I don't know if I, got, I could do that. I don't know if I got the words for that. I don't know if I know what to do or say. Or, well, guess what? He, he helps you with that too. Here's the thing. You have people in your life who need to know this king, this king who reigns from a cross. They need him. They need to know this king that wears a crown of thorns, this king that has conquered death in the grave, this king that, that will tame their rebellion, forgive their sins, and make sense of their lives. They need him just like you've needed him. As we close tonight, what I would like is for you just to whisper those persons' names to him. It could be a long list, a short list, whatever God puts on your heart for just a few minutes. I just want us to spend a few minutes just asking him, God, would you help me to reach these people? And, and would you with me just call out to him these names? God, I pray for